This is an ABC podcast. G'day, this is Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. This week, we check in with Ukraine's agriculture sector. A vital export deal almost collapsed this week. The country's electricity grid has been attacked and input costs are soaring for farmers. Cost of production, including drying for corn, is much higher than current price. Before we get there, though, Serena Locke is here to run through this week's biggest rural news. Good morning, Serena. Yes, good morning, Clint. Demand for gas is through the roof, but farmers who host gas wells are facing other problems. Some farmers in southern Queensland are finding gas is leaking from the old concrete wells. Yeah, this is an investigation done by the ABC and uh, Lock the Gate as well. There are over 8,000 CSG gas wells across the Surat Basin of Queensland. 22,000 more will be drilled in the coming decades. And CSG wells are drilled hundreds of metres underground into coal seams and they're constructed from steel casings and sealed with cement. Now, Freedom of Information releases show old concrete have corroded for a few gas wells that are less than 20 years old and there is leakage into water aquifers. Gavin Mudd is an associate professor of environmental engineering at RMIT and he worries about the longer term as salt corrodes cement. It may mean that you've uh, opened up pathways for a potential cross-contamination of groundwater. So uh, you've got to have your poorer quality groundwater from one part of the system that can then flow into another part of the, you know, the geologies. And other farmers have told uh, the ABC that old CSG wells that were decommissioned were not remediated and they can't safely farm the paddock. So, look, the full story is on the ABC rural site. Next up, graziers of Western Queensland have a pretty vexed relationship with one of our national emblems. Kangaroo numbers have built up and they're competing with sheep for grass. Yes, and, and kangaroos can reproduce rapidly when the seasons are good. Mm. Uh, and graziers in Western Queensland say they need to control numbers so they can feed their sheep. Now, in Queensland, red kangaroos, wallaroos and eastern grey kangaroos are harvested for commercial and non-commercial purposes, so that's code for culling. Now, landholders say legally controlling kangaroo numbers to preserve their pasture is really made harder by an ammunition shortage. It's blamed the war in Ukraine and also shipment delays after COVID. But freight companies also stopped carrying ammunition over a year ago. So, you know, some shooters have to travel 700k round trips just to get their bullets. There are about 20 to 30 roo shooters in Winton alone. Now, that plus the rain has stopped a lot of roo shooting. There's also the issue about wild dog exclusion fences. They've successfully got rid of wild dogs and foxes to protect sheep, but they also protect kangaroos and those numbers are built up. Now, Stonehenge wool grower Mike Pratt estimates he has 10,000 kangaroos on 15,000 hectares of land. You know, if we got 5,000 kangaroos, well, that means that they're sort of taking away um, the feed from 3,500 sheep or something like that. Like, like it's quite significant. And then obviously you, you go into drought a lot quicker because you've got excess numbers and they stay behind when all the stock have gone off, just destroying the country even more. Like it's a huge environmental problem. 
The world is online, but there are still digital black spots for regional and remote Australians, and the federal government has committed more funding to boost internet connections. Well, that's right, and everything is online. We are certainly banking, monitoring water, even where to fertilise your paddocks, uh, not to mention playing games and watching Top Gun 2 or Marvel's Ragnarok on your home <laughs> cinema. So the federal government is committing $30 million over the next three years to boost on-farm connectivity. Now, Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said money will help extend coverage with broadband internet repeaters, plus it will also assist farmers or businesses with with tech hubs uh, to receive really practical advice. And she gives some examples. I'm able to get um, a good signal near my homestead, but once I go out into the field, um, I don't. I really need connectivity. I really need to have a signal um, within a certain number of metres. Um, what can I do? And they can receive advice on the different types of um, sort of existing kit they can purchase. This can be anything from um, something small that magnifies the existing signal and sends it out further, um, or it can be additional um, dishes, um, for example. The federal government, while in opposition, dismissed the coalition's Northern Australia development plans, but that is changing now that they're in power. Yeah, so the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility, known as NAFE, was set up in 2015 as a $5 billion loan facility and it was designed to fast-track development projects across Northern Australia, I think sort of sealing roads where cattle trucks travel and so on. But over the last seven years, it's copped plenty of flack for its lack of investments and federal labour claimed NAIF stood for no actual infrastructure fund. But uh, labour is, of course, now in charge of the NAIF and Minister for Northern Australia, Madeline King, says it is broadening the scope to include renewable energy projects. The feedback we were getting from the community and uh, people that were running projects is they were told, you know, casually and on the side, if you've got a renewable project, don't go to the NAIF. Well, you know, that's changed now. We want to invest in traditional resource projects as well as new resource economy projects like critical minerals, but equally in, and importantly in renewable projects. So that, and that's, the NAIF has caught my drift, so to speak, the board. So, uh, and, you know, we're working together to make sure that happens. Globalisation is about to affect Australian apples because US apples can now be imported into Australia. That's right. So, I mean, with good cold storage, we can eat locally grown apples year round, but now we'll also be able to buy American apples in the off season. Australian farmers, of course, fear it will destroy their businesses. The Federal Agriculture Department has approved the import of fresh apples from three regions in the United States, subject to strict biosecurity procedures. And Southern Tasmanian apple grower John Eaves says two years of COVID has knocked their sales and now US apples will be allowed in, helped by a US subsidy called the Export Enhancement Scheme. The USDA said to me whilst I was here, I said to them, will they be coming in under the US Export Enhancement Scheme? And they said, yes. Well, that is a 65% subsidy. So even if you're thinking that we've got a low dollar and they've got a high dollar and they're not going to make any money, well, they can afford to sell at 41 cents in the dollar and get paid the rest when they get home. Hey, overflowing dams along the Murray-Darling system, both in Victoria and New South Wales, have been spilling. The flooding is expected to last for a really long time. 
Yeah, it's been described as a mammoth flooding and rainfall event. Crops, of course, have been inundated, but some will make it through if the water flows off soonish. Now, that's the message of Kate Burke, who's a former agronomist and agricultural researcher who lives at Moama. And she says harvests, or some of them, will be very productive, but not all. Because you only have to go a little bit further west into the Mallee and the Wimmera. There's, there's water over there too, but there's still some terrific looking crops with great potential. For some individuals, you know, the, the good stuff will override the bad stuff. And then for some really unlucky individuals who just happen to be farming in the lower spots, you know, they'll, they'll have some huge financial impact. Farmers who have had crops damaged by floods and hoping for supermarkets to help out are set to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, and the New South Wales Farmers Association has hit out at the supermarket giant Coles after the company rejected farmers' calls to raise prices. Now, farmers are currently facing a series of compounding challenges, not just these natural disasters, but also skyrocketing input costs that are hitting their bottom line. Vice President of New South Wales Farmers, Rebecca Riordan, says the supermarket is asking farmers to pass on their savings to uh, the supermarket farming inputs, as I said, you know, if everything from labour to fuel and energy have gone up. The increases in our prices are nowhere near matching the increase in our costs. On top of that, you've got a company like Coles, which is making over a billion dollars after tax a year, um, flexing its muscle and actually trying to um, screw the farmer who really has no margin left to give. And it's also at the moment, as we know, um, after coming out of drought, as now a lot around the state are actually facing massive floods. It's just cheeky and it's just rude. And Coles didn't respond really in time for uh, us to go to air. Meanwhile, the food charity service Food Bank is dealing with the fallout of several years of natural disasters. Yes, so we think of the 2019-2020 fires, the floods in northern New South Wales. Food Bank is still providing food to families who can't afford it, but also farmers themselves are being affected by food insecurity. Food Bank CEO Brianna Casey says her organisation is having to purchase food where it previously had donated. We need to be able to incentivise donation of products into food relief. And it's one of the reasons that we've been working with the likes of the National Farmers Federation, with our retailers, with transport and logistics companies to really advocate for a tax incentive. We want to see a food donation tax incentive so that if a grower or a farmer is donating a product for the purposes of food relief, that there's actually a tax benefit in doing that. It's a pretty sad situation to be faced by an organisation like Food Bank who must be working overtime as the cost of living soars. Yes, uh, these are quite tricky times and um, I work for a bit of a food charity just, you know, one evening and, um, yeah, you get inundated by people just seeking out some food for the evening. Well, Serena, on that note, we'll leave rural news there for the week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Clint. This week, we're meeting some very young farmers. They're keeping an eye on the sky and praying the rain stays away as they get ready to harvest a wheat crop they've planted and nurtured from seed. It's growing in a paddock next door to their primary school. We'll also catch up with some secondary students who've picked up a swag of awards for their work with sheep and cattle. 
We'll find out the secret to their success. And we'll meet a grazier and his partner who are rescuing and rehoming brumbies. They're working with the wild horses to get them used to being around humans and they're hoping to change perceptions about the animals. There's so many misconceptions out there about these fellas. When, when you see people's faces, they're, they're just never what they expected. It's such a learning experience. I am one of these people that have been taught. Uh, once I got the first slot, you just can't explain it. I have a word I call it, and most people have experienced it, I call it the wow factor. You'll be in the yards with them doing something and they just do something out of the blue and you just go, wow, where did that come from? Observing the wow factor in wild horses. We'll meet that couple who are working with Brumbies and finding them new homes. That's coming up a little later. First today, we're headed to a mountaintop town where a community exchange program is helping residents to share the spoils of their gardens and their kitchens. Caitlin Sheehan has the story. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, pop it in there, it'll stay fresh. Thank you. In Queensland's Gold Coast hinterland, Residents are swapping fresh produce with the aim of reducing waste, feeding their neighbours and fostering community spirit. Yeah, still sweet all the way up. Yeah, have a look around. Lisa Guy and her friend Bronwyn Kelly started up this edible exchange after hearing about a similar one that was running at Sanford near Brisbane. It was just inspiring to us because everything that they were doing would fit into this community perfectly as well. So it was a bit of a aha moment. And, yeah, Bron and I went, this is it, this is it, we need this on the mountain. <laughs> it's perfect because we have a lot of small backyard farmers or herb growers, garden growers that haven't got enough to sell to anyone. And we don't want waste. We want to minimise waste. So they can bring it along here, exchange their excess for somebody else's excess. And it works out beautifully because... Um, people have different things in their garden. Hello, I'm Caitlin Sheehan. I'm here checking out the huge array of produce that is being offered up at the Eagle Heights Edible Exchange at Mount Tambourine. We've got a tree loaded with them. <laughs> have you dropped stuff off before? Yes, just once. Yeah? And have you taken anything? Uh, no, not yet. I'm just looking. I have, I have um, taken... Been given a couple of brownies from here. Ooh. Baked goods. Ooh, I was thinking this was just stuff that people grow in their garden. People are baking. Value adding. Ooh. People leave um, bread, don't they? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Homemade bread. It's two small sheds um, with a sort of a, a bookshelf shelf in the middle with a little roof that is abundantly full. Um, it's, there's no shock there. And you were saying the value add. So I can see in one of the sheds here, we've got some look like dried citrus and, and things like that. Is that part of that um, yes. value adding if they're taking things? So they would have taken the citrus from the stall and then they've taken it home and dehydrated it. There's also dried um, mint on the stall. Sometimes we uh, get other bits and pieces that um, people have sourced from other gardens so they might have sourced it from their neighbour's garden and they'll bring that along um, there's chilies, there's all sorts we also love to encourage people to bring seeds so anything that they've grown in their garden and has worked in this environment local environment um, will grow perfectly on the mountain so people love that because they know it's going to work so they have the seed saving 
food security um, is really important. Mm. So um, we really encourage people to let some things go to seed and then share their seeds because we know that that's going to work here. Yeah. And looking at the shed, so they've got these uh, hessian on the front doors and that serves a particular purpose? Yes, the old-fashioned um, coolie fridges on um, verandas in... Um, when people didn't have electricity, they'd wet the canvas and the wind blowing through um, evap- the evaporative air from that cools the items down. So in summertime, it just it adds shade, but it can also keep the items cooler. Very ingenious. Is that something that you investigated or learnt as part of this venture? Bron and I are ideas women. <laughs> We come up, we come up, Brom will add, say something, and then I'll add to it, and then she'll add to it, and then it's like, oh, and it does this, oh, and it does that. So um, that was one of those little brainstorming moments that, that happened organically Yeah, you, <laughs> one day out here. Yeah, because you've built this yourselves. The two of you have put this together? We have, yeah. We've met, um, we use pallets, so everything is recycled. I, I collect things. It's not hoarding. It's collecting recyclable items. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I love getting on the tools and um, having a go. And it's a, most of it, or all of it, has recycled. Even the hessian on the doors, um, I bought at a garage sale and was saving it for a special occasion. And and then it came along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did this all start? This started at the beginning of June, and we've now got a um, thousand Facebook members. And we've got other people that contribute but um, aren't on Facebook. So we encourage our members to take a photo and share it on Facebook so that the people know what other people know what's been left and what's been taken. We then educate people on there as well so people can share recipes or things that they love and that works really well. Yeah. So only in a few short months it's grown into the, what it is now yeah yeah it's amazing people it, it will write for the picking everybody this is like um, riding the wave because everybody's worried about food su- sustainability <laughs> and here's my granddaughter <laughs> what's your name ellie yeah. Oh so gosh, Ellie was one of our first exchanges <laughs> at two years old. And um, yeah, she, she loves it. What do you hope for the future of the Edible Exchange? How do you hope that it grows? Um, we hope Bye that it's sustainable. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Um, we hope that the future, um, we, we can expand more, but um, it's pumping along so well now that we, with 1,000 people and there's only 7,000 people on the mountain, We've got one-seventh of the population covered and probably a third of the adult population. So that's pretty cool. And um, people love it. It's, it's right in this environment because, and community because people want connection. People want to feel part of something and part of something positive that's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a microphone. Yeah. And for the future, we need, you know food security for my granddaughter like to have plants that will grow in this community it's important so that she has good food to eat and she has the the healthiest organic food that we can we can feed her and um and that's important we're we're doing this together we're doing it together yeah and that's really nice Students at this tiny school in western New South Wales are swapping their school uniforms for work shirts and farm boots and heading out to spend part of their school day in the paddock. 
Hello, I'm Jen McCutcheon and I'm visiting Hermitdale Public School, almost 600 kilometres west of Sydney, where there are just seven students from kindergarten to year six. The students here have spent most of this year tending to an 85 hectare wheat crop and are now gearing up for harvest. Ruby Mudford and Ollie Sheetha are both in their last year of primary school. I've loved watching all the machinery and things come out and like spraying and sewing and things. We come out here maybe twice or three times a week and we come out to the crop and we measure it, we check how many seeds are on the head and we try to find the seed in the head. We've had the whole community help. We've had people donate chemical and seed and we've had people use their machinery as well and we can't wait to harvest. See how it starts to turn golden at the top? Like in that bit, we need it to turn fully golden and then the actual seeds to go gold and then it can be harvested. If it does rain in the middle of harvest, well that's gonna obviously make it wet and the harvesters can't get in to do it, so. Hopefully not too many bogs. Yeah, we're hoping that, but I reckon they will be. <laughs> <laughs> The paddock neighbours the school and was donated by former student Craig Grimmond. I donated it to him. I was very kind and generous, I suppose, but yeah. People say, oh, what'd you donate that whole block from? Oh, mate, I, I said, I rarely use it. And I said, it's going to be a benefit for me in the long run because it'll be cleaned up. We need more farmers. We're running out of farms. All our farmers are getting old in life. So we need to get a bit more young blood into the game. Instead of being so many... Uh, people going into the law and doctors and we need more, more farmers. Leading the team of young farmers is Principal Sky Deadman. So our motto is um, reach for the stars and so we talk about that a lot as teachers. We hold the ladder for them to reach for the stars so we give them the tools um, for them then to go forward in their, in their journey as lifelong learners. 115. Sky Deadman says the Cropping Immersion Project has been a welcome opportunity for the students and the community after experiencing the worst drought in living memory, a mouse plague and COVID-19 lockdowns. Our school and our community really felt um, the brunt of the drought. It was three very long, hard years. There was days when we couldn't see our playground for dust. Um, so it's really, it's come a full circle in that now, three years later, we're in a position where we've got the right amount of moisture. The heads are filling out. We're looking at harvesting in November sometime. So for the next few weeks, we really would like some dry conditions, hot winds, just to get, let that wheat ripen perfectly. But, you know, we're pretty resilient farmers and if it doesn't go that way, we'll just adapt to it. The whole town has pitched in to help, including parent and farmer Darren Mudford. Yeah, end of January we tied up a few sticks there and then we ploughed it. One of the kids' fathers ploughed her up and then got a few rain events and then we've sowed it. And oh, It'd be nice to think we'll get two, two and a half tonnes a hectare, which is not a bad effort. Pretty amazing. Yeah. The students' wheat crop is expected to yield over 100 tonnes at harvest and raise up to $50,000. That money will then be used to send the students on education-based excursions around the country. Sky Deadman says they're even hoping to go to Newcastle later this year to see their wheat being loaded at port. Maybe one for Oliver. 
Anything out of our hand? Our whole project is about growing our future. So there's the two elements. There's a cropping project, which obviously we can talk about sustainability, agriculture, environmental aspects. But then our other side of the project is the educational, cultural and social part. 115. 115 centimetres. We are going to do education, cultural and social immersion projects as well. So then being able to take them to Newcastle to see the grain being loaded, they'll then see the whole cycle of from planting the seed to selling to the export market. And again, we talk about where our wheat's going to end up, you know, in other countries around, around the world. And we know that Australia is one of the highest exporters of wheat. So for them to see that we're part of a global market... The average age of a farmer in Australia is about 59, but these students are showing there's definitely a future in farming. And after years of praying for rain, they're now hoping for some blue skies to see their dream crop become a reality. Out here we um, find it hard to knock back rain and a wet harvest always beats no harvest. That was farmer and parent Darren Mudford, who's been helping the students at Hermadale Public School in Western New South Wales with their wheat crop. He was speaking to reporter Jen McCutcheon. And you can see more on that story, including some great photos of the kids in the paddock and their crop is looking pretty good just weeks out from harvest. You can find those by searching for ABC Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, we'll meet some high school students whose favourite subject is working with farm animals in their school's agriculture program. And the couple who found their passion working with horses that are classed as ferals. Central Queensland grazier Paul Johnston has always loved working with horses. They're so giving. Once you have their trust, they will give you 110, 120%. So when he first learned of the controversy surrounding how to best manage wild horses in New South Wales, he was inspired to act. Brumbies are declared feral animals in Australia and are trapped in the high country as part of the 2021 Kosciuszko National Park Wild Horse Heritage Management Plan. The New South Wales government plan lists rehoming trapped horses for domestication as a primary control method. Seven, eight years ago, um, I got introduced closely with the Brumbies and we feel that their heritage value is uh, worth a great to this country. So we thought we'd step up to the plate and say we'll start rehoming them. So Paul and his partner, Maureen Levin, established Clearview Brumby Rescue at Thangool, 150 kilometres south of Rockhampton in 2020. We said we'd save some Brumbies. You can only save five at a time. Uh, we were going down to get them. It was the, they said they were available the Friday before COVID. So we ended up getting a truck, bringing them up and we said, well, we'll take 15, not five. And that was our foundation herd. And uh, to my knowledge, we are the largest KMP rehomer in Australia. We're up in excess of 300 now that we've rehomed. Aren't you, Dolly? G'day, I'm Pat Heaney. I'm here visiting Paul and Maureen at Clearview, where they care for the rescued horses and get them used to being handled while they await new homes. And you want some too, Chile, huh? Maureen Levin says it's a role she has embraced wholeheartedly. This is, this is what you get. Dolly's already been halter trained, leading, picking up her feet, all of those things. Same as Mate, it means the world to me. Um, I always wanted to be able to save more. After that, I had... People contacted me left, right and centre saying, you know, we wish we could do what you're doing, we wish we could take on a Brumby. Mr Johnston says he was surprised by the overwhelming amount of support the clinic has received 
from all across the country. When we started rehoming, we were swamped with enthusiasm from people wanting to rehome. 90% uh, in Queensland, we've been we've rehomed as far south as Lismore. Uh, we've rehomed as far north as Proserpine, uh, inland to Barcaldine. We've even rehomed uh, two Brumbies to Tasmania. The clinic relies on volunteers to care for the animals, and Mr Johnston says there has been a multitude of people helping, many of whom have taken up residence on site. The volunteers come from all over, and we've just offered it that if people have got interest in the Brumbies that they can drop in, whether it be for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, uh, help out. They get the experience of the Brumbies and then they can uh, move on and talk about it. We've had people come here from New Zealand, uh, the Netherlands, that have had nothing to do with horses before. They've come here and gone away absolutely rocked with the experience and some have come back three, four times. So it seems to have an impact on them. After years of debate about wild Brumby management, Mr Johnston says one of his motivations is to challenge public perceptions of the animals. There's so many misconceptions out there about these fellas. When, when you see people's faces, they're, they're just never what they expected. It's such a learning experience. I am one of these people that have been taught. Uh, once I got the first slot, you just can't explain it. I have a word I call it, and most people have experienced it, I call it the wow factor. You'll be in the yards with them doing something and they just do something out of the blue and you just go, wow. Where did that come from? Ms Levin says their wild background means Brumbies have retained many attributes domestic horses have lost. I've had trainers come to me and say they've got their horses and they get people pay them thousands of dollars to train their horses to do what these guys do naturally. Just their moves, their their agility, um, their intelligence, um, just their, their, their nature, their temperaments, that you can't buy them anymore. There's nothing that you, they can't do if you give them a chance. In Springshaw, 330 kilometres west of Rockhampton, the idea of taming a wild Brumby is taking root. A group of locals has established the Springshaw Show Brumby Challenge, tasked with taming a Brumby to ride in the local show next June. Competitor Rob Stewart says it's an exciting opportunity to test out his skills. It should be a good showcase of um, different levels of people's ability to get get something that was four weeks ago running around wild to... Um, to hopefully being part of a crew and being able to um, actively participate in the show and, and hopefully cattle work at home. It's early days, but Mr Stewart says he can see a future for Brumbies on his property. Yeah, I think it's a natural resource that we've got um, and if people have got the time and the ability to, to put into them to get them quiet and, and used, um, yeah, definitely. Mr Johnston hopes greater public exposure will grant more Brumbies a second chance. While they are trapping them, we will stand up to the plate and do the best we can to find them for forever homes. And these horses have proved themselves that they are diversified and can be used in many disciplines. Until you've experienced it, don't knock them and don't criticise. They are just not what you expected. They're so unique. They're, they're one-offs. Every one of them. Yeah. It takes a lot of work to get a cow show ready. And Year 10 student Claire Ingram spends every lunchtime in the ag plot with the cows leading up to the big day. So this is Stephanie. Um, she is around 12 months old. Um, she's a purebred shorthorn, like all our stud animals. So each year we have a letter. And this year's letter was, well, it was actually 
it would have been last year's letter when they were born, is S. That's actually superb Tammy over there. We had to, it's superb Tammy. And then that showgirl, Stephanie, who else do we have? We have any more S's? Skittles, Scooter, Sid. Yeah. Yeah, Sizzler. Yeah, so she was born and bred at our school. G'day, I'm Annie Brown and I'm here at Finlay High School in the Riverina region of southern New South Wales. This school is well known in the agricultural show world with a history of picking up a string of awards and they've just had their most successful year at the Royal Melbourne Show. We were awarded the Grand Champion Carcass of Melbourne Show 2022, which was... Very, very hard to win in all our time doing it. So uh, that really topped it off. And we were the most successful school or college at the show as well. So we had an amazing show. He went on to be supreme interbreed ram of the show. So the best ram in the whole shed at Melbourne Show. And the best beef carcass. And the best beef carcass at the whole show as well. That's ag teacher Gary Webb. He works alongside Robin O'Leary, who's been teaching at the school for 35 years. They currently have 39 students enrolled in ag from years 11 and 12, which isn't too bad for a school of around 360 students. She says the ag program has only been successful due to the massive amounts of support from the local community. Yes, so we run a Paul Dorset sheep enterprise, a shorthorn beef cattle enterprise and we have poultry. We are in such a great place because of our community commitment and for a long time we we ran 15 to 18 steers and every one of those would have been donated by our friendly farmers that we love. They provided the wheels to drive our whole program. Although it's not important for the students to bring home ribbons, Mrs O'Leary admits that the prize money is very useful and helps take the program further. Any type of ribbon or recognition that the kids receive is just like gold because they value it so much and to see them smile to get that reward for effort is awesome. Not to say that you know you have to always get a ribbon but it's great for them to get that and it, it builds interest and keeps things just ticking along nicely. Mr Webb also encourages all local farmers to support their ag programs. Quite often the teacher is there and can feel out of their depth, whether it be knowing how to manage, say, cattle or, or sheep. And there's so many ways in which local farmers or businesses can support their agriculture program. And it isn't easy, as we've said these days, but I think there's a lot that farmers can do to support, whether it's helping with some wisdom and advice or genetics with semen or maybe helping donate animals to keep the program going. It all goes back into the kids eventually and helping develop students into our agriculture in Australia. And we know how much need there is to have people move into the industry. So whatever people can do, I think is, is certainly worth it and the teachers would appreciate it. What impact does having agriculture as a subject at the school have on, I guess, the broader school and the students themselves? The students themselves get so much out of it. Agriculture teaches them so much more. They learn a whole lot of skills and husbandry and knowledge about farming, but they also learn a lot of skills about talking to other people. 
how to present yourself to people. Responsibility, you know, if they don't feed their animal or make sure their water trough's clean, who does? You know, if you're not prepared to drink the water, don't expect your steer to drink the water. All those kinds of things where they learn so many important life skills that are transferable to all areas of their lives in the future. And people we've had come through here, they've had uh, television or radio come to their workplace and everyone else is scattered and they went, oh, I'll do it, you know, <laughs> it's not that hard. And they thank the process of having done junior judging and speaking on a microphone to a crowd or, you know, we've done presentations to different groups about our ag program and, and the importance of water to agriculture and things like that in the past where the kids have spoken and prepared information and whatnot. So they develop you know, just so many other skills, which I think is important. Agriculture remains a popular subject at school and the students say it has a lot to do with their teachers. Yeah, I think that it's very important that we acknowledge our teachers because Miss, Mrs O'Leary and Mr Webb, they, if it wasn't for them, this wouldn't even exist. Like, this wouldn't even be, probably wouldn't even be a topic or we wouldn't even have any practicals sessions in the topic and... I think that if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't know as much as we do now and we wouldn't be so well known in the showing community. And we are just very grateful and thankful that we have such amazing teachers to let us have this opportunity because I know a lot of schools don't get this sort of thing. Some of the students at Finlay High School in the Riverina region of southern New South Wales, ending that story from Annie Brown. And before that, Pat Heaney took us to Clearview Brumby Rescue in central Queensland. You can read more about that story and the work that Paul Johnson and his partner Maureen Levin are doing with the horses there. Just look it up on our homepage. Head to the ABC RN website and look for Country Breakfast. Dam money has been reallocated by the federal government so that water can be bought back from irrigators and reallocated to the environment. The federal government won't say how much funding it has committed to a new fund established in the recent federal budget to meet water-saving commitments across the Murray-Darling Basin. But Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has confirmed the new fund contains money the previous coalition government planned to spend on building dams. National Rural reporter Cass Sullivan spoke with Ms Plibersek and began by asking how much funding the government has set aside for buybacks in this financial year. Well, we have set money aside to um, achieve the, the goals of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and there is uh, an amount of money that is listed as not for publication in the budget. That won't be just for buybacks, it will be for other water projects that will help us meet our goals as well. And there's a very good reason that it's not for publication. Like anybody who walks into a negotiation, uh, if they're trying to buy something or they're trying to get a state government to put some money into a plan, if you telegraph how much you're willing to spend up front, you're not going to get value for money. The Water and for the Environment Special Accounts Review suggested it could cost up to $11 billion to recover the 450 gigalitres. That's leaving aside the 605 gigalitres that is expected from state-run projects. Is $11 billion a ballpark figure that taxpayers no, can expect? No, and uh, we're certainly not uh, contemplating spending that sort of money. Nowhere near it. Uh, we think that we can get much better value and... and the reason we can get much better value is because um, voluntary buybacks are on the table, as I have said from the very beginning. Nothing is off the table. Mandatory buybacks? We're not talking about that at all at the moment. We've still got um, a, a great deal of work to do with states and territories about mapping how we get to um, the full implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm expecting to meet with water ministers again early in the new year. 
they have promised to look at the projects they've got underway in their states and um, territory and uh, we're very happy to work with them cooperatively on water efficiency projects and other approaches. But voluntary buybacks really do have to be on the table as part of the solution. So when would the Commonwealth re-enter the market for those buybacks? Well, I'm not going to um, be discussing details like that yet. We still have a way to go. We want to be cooperative with the states and territories. If great projects come up, if great offers come forward, uh, then I want to be in a position to take up those offers. This week we saw the Commonwealth scrap um, or postpone funding for dams. Will any of that money be reallocated to water buybacks? Uh, well, in fact, some of the money that has been set aside in the not-for-publication line has come from uh, the can cancellation uh, of a couple of dam projects and the reprofiling or the, the delay um, of some other dam projects as well. And, and the, the dam projects are interesting in themselves. We, we had a government that was in power for nine years, promised a hundred dams and built two. One of those was nine gigalitres, the other one was 16. So not two very small dams, in fact, out of the hundred they promised. So they talk a big game on dams, but they are pretty poor at delivering. 2% success rate on what they promised. Okay, speaking of delivery, you're committed to finding 450 gigalitres of water that was promised in addition to the Murray-Darling Basin plan. What's the point of acquiring that water for the environment if it, in fact, can't be delivered due to constraints? We're working with the states and territories very cooperatively on, uh, on constraints measures as well, uh, supply measures on um, improvements to the efficient use of water in partnership with irrigation companies in some cases. We are absolutely uh, looking at all of the ways we can get to the full delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Nothing's off the table. I've said on multiple occasions that the goal is clear, but I'm agnostic about the pathway. Just still on the buybacks, if I was an irrigator that had been considering selling permanent water entitlement, why would I put that on the market now, knowing that the Commonwealth could be about to re-enter and offer a premium? Aren't you concerned that you've already flagged um, something that could perhaps interrupt the market? Well, no, I'm not concerned about that because we've heard claims already from the opposition that uh, the fact that the Commonwealth might be a buyer somehow distorts the market. The opposition were prepared to engage in buybacks when they were in government. In fact, when Barnaby Joyce was the Water Minister, he spent $80 million buying water entitlements from a fund that was based in the Cayman Islands and set up by Angus Taylor. Do you need the support of the states to buy back water, either to meet the 450 target or uh, other shortfalls across the Basin Plan? I'd like the cooperation of the states to achieve the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which they say they want to do, and I want to work cooperatively with them. They also say they them. don't want water buybacks. Well, I'm not, going to start, um, I'm not going to start negotiating through the media. We've already seen great steps forward uh, since the Labor government came to power. I believe state water ministers, when they say they want to work cooperatively, to deliver. Are you still working towards that June 2024 deadline? Well, we are still working to the June 2024 deadline. The previous government tied up the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in brown tape. They deliberately sabotaged the delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. 
Uh, they didn't want to achieve it. They say they do, but if you judge them on their action, they did everything they could to slow or derail the could delivery of the plan. Could you negotiate the state's support for water buybacks by offering an extension of one or two years on, on the state-run projects? Again, I'm not going to do negotiations like that through the media. Our last water minister's meeting a couple of weeks ago was very successful, very cooperative. Uh, there was a very strong spirit uh, of people wanting to work together to deliver on the plan. I'm going to focus on working quietly, methodically and sensibly with the other water ministers to deliver. Tanya Plibersek is the Federal Environment and Water Minister. Three giant tractors, each worth more than a million dollars, have travelled across Australia bound for Antarctica. The machines have been heavily modified to suit sub-zero conditions at Wilkins Aerodrome, 70 kilometres from Casey Station. Jason Wood from tractor company Case IH told reporter Aaron Cooper they've been years in the making. It's been a process that's been ongoing for us for quite some time now. So basically a tender was put out for three 500 horsepower four-track machines to go to Antarctica, um, but they have to be heavily modified, to, as you'd imagine, to, to handle the conditions down there. So, um, yeah, we won the tender and then the, then the hard work began. So we've basically been dealing on a weekly basis with factory um, to get them to a point from factory with um, what we could get done at the local factory and then we shipped them to a company called Grouser in the US who basically did all the Arctic modifications that were very unique to these machines. So are they built here in Australia before they're modified? No, so they're built in the US. So they're built in a uh, Stiger factory in Fargo in the US. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, shipped to Grouser, which is another company in the US, modified, then shipped to us. So what did they have to do? We've got some pretty hefty looking wheels and, and things on this one. Yeah, so so basically um, they've got, um, that's our track configuration, but this is what we've got, we call it an Arctic track on it for typically Arctic conditions, but the modifications are extensive. They've got um, two 40-volt heaters on the engines, transmissions, um, hydraulic reservoirs, as well as diesel heaters for when they're not near power sources. Um, the engine enclosure, as you can see, is fully enclosed, so we, we basically draw all the warm air in. We can't draw any cool air in because it's just... The machine's going to be operating down to minus 40 degrees Celsius, so it's it's very extreme. A um, lot of modifications, auxiliary fuel tanks. The fuel tank size is tripled in size. Um, just so many modifications you wouldn't believe. Do you Have you ever had to modify a tractor quite this heavily for a job before? No, no this is a very unique situation. So, yeah, it's something we haven't... Well, there's quad tracks down there that were done prior to my time with Case IH, um, but probably not modified quite as much as this one. And I'm looking at this one. It says tear weigh 26,760 kilos. That that gives people a good idea of the size. But run us through some of the specs of just how big this is. Yeah, so roughly it's it's just under four metres tall. Um, length, I'd have to check it. It's probably seven or eight metres long. Um, and as you said, that, that's the tear weight with the full, uh, fuel tanks full. It's just under 27 tonne. Right, okay, wow. Um, and so what's the journey been so far? You said they went through their modification process in the US. I imagine it's quite a logistical exercise to get them here to Longford. Absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so they went from factory originally once they went down the production line, then they were shipped to, to Grouser for their modifications. Once completed there, back to factory for more testing um, to make sure everything was still within spec. Um, then they get put on a train to, to depot, uh, to Wharf over there. Then they get shipped to us in Melbourne. Then we put them on trucks down here to, to Longford. So they were trucks uh, ferried over? Yep. Yeah. And what exactly is this supposed to do once it does reach Antarctica? So it's, got a, it's got quite a few unique um, tasks ahead of it. So probably the biggest one that it'll be doing, it's going to be pulling a 90-tonne roller 
for the for the airport runways down there. It'll also be doing scraper work, but then it'll also be pulling um, sleds as well. Yeah, right. And so when you say um, it's it's going at Wilkins Aerodome, so it's trying to keep that runway flat, essentially. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. So that's its major task is to keep that runway operational. And that sounds like it's a pretty massive ongoing task. Absolutely. The conditions down there, as we'd imagine, would be very extreme. Um, so the ongoing maintenance of that runway would be pretty heavy duty and probably hence why there's three of them going down. Yeah. And I suppose that's the other thing. I'm looking at one, but it is times three. Yeah. <laughs> How much is that made? I mean, have you ever dealt with quite a logistical exercise in your career? Um, we handle a lot of machines. Um, probably the, the, the different thing with this one is the machines that we handle are probably pretty vanilla. So they're a pretty standard order, pretty standard build spec. This one's been very unique in that the modifications were very specific, uh, very specific in what they wanted and they, they knew what they wanted. It was just a matter of us um, finding the right people to help us fulfil the task. And when are they making the final leg of the journey and, and how are they getting to the icy continent? Yeah, so they'll be moved from here to um, in about a month's time, I believe, um, to, to wharf and they'll be craned onto a ship. So there's a big crane that physically lifts these onto a boat and then they'll go from boat to Antarctica. How big is that crane then? It's quite a large unit. <laughs> Seems like an underestimation. Seems like it'd be, have to be pretty massive. Yeah, it is. I've seen pictures of it. It's um, it, Actually, with these on it, the, the, they actually look small compared to the crane. So now you're looking at it. Um, do you get a sense of personal fulfilment knowing that this has been a while in the making? Yeah, it's been a it's been a unique project. Um, it's probably it's a little bit unusual that it actually feels like it's going to finish because basically it's been uh, a process for us every week talking about it. Where's it up to? What components have been done? What still needs to be done? So um, the list has been long. Um, we've ticked off all the boxes, but yeah, it'll be interesting feeling when it's finished. I imagine. Were there any hiccups along the way that you've managed to overcome? No, Touchwood actually, it all went pretty smoothly. It's been a big job. The overseas team, we probably had seven or eight key people there as well that we, we, we spoke with weekly um, that kept things on tap. So it's been a, a very good group. And yeah, everything, thing, Touchwood went pretty smoothly. I should also ask, what's one of these worth now they've all been kitted out? Um, well over a million dollars, let's just say that, per unit. Right, multi-million dollar project then. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add about the whole thing? No, not really, apart from the fact that uh, we're looking forward some, uh, to seeing some pictures of red tractors on white snow. That's Jason Wood talking to Aaron Cooper about three high-tech tractors arriving in Antarctica next month. It's been a dramatic week for a vital deal between Ukraine and Russia that's allowed millions of tonnes of grain to flow from the Black Sea to countries in the Middle East and Africa. It all started last Saturday when an attack on Russian vessels near Sevastopol saw Russia announce it would withdraw support for the deal, which was brokered in July and due to expire on the 19th of this month. But the ships kept sailing, with grain vessels moving from Black Sea ports on all but Wednesday. And by Thursday morning, Australian time, the deal was back on again, with Russia's Ministry of Defence saying it had received assurances Ukraine wouldn't use the Black Sea Grain Corridor for military operations against Russia. Elena Neroba is a Ukrainian grain analyst with MaxiGrain, currently based in London. She says the deal has been working to get grain out of Ukrainian ports. So basically, since the beginning of this grain deal, uh, uh, from August the 1st till November the 1st, till today, 423 voyages from Ukrainian ports have carried 9.8 million metric tons of different kind of grains and byproducts. 
With these stop and starts combined with the uh, destruction of infrastructure, you know, we've heard a lot, uh, especially recently, about attacks on Ukraine's electricity grid and the disruptions to power there. How is the actual supply chain coping in delivering grain to port? In some uh, cities, they don't have electricity supply for 10 hours per day because we absolutely understand that we have to supply with electricity, firstly, business facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those factories, plants, railways, all all companies who provide Essential goods and, yes, and services because uh, Ukraine is highly dependent on income from grain trading. So, yeah, people understand what is the reason and they are waiting for, for the best, they expect for the best. What can you tell us, Elena, about this season's harvest? We were reading in, in July and August that Ukrainian grain growers were braving some incredibly dangerous conditions to actually harvest this year's crop. As of October 27th, we finished harvesting of barley. We harvested 5.6 million metric tons of barley versus 9.6 million metric tons in 2021. We finished wheat harvesting. We collected um, almost 19.5 million metric tons of all kinds of wheat. Instead, almost 32.5 million metric tons a year ago. A huge part of this wheat, which could be uh, harvested by Ukraine, is on occupied territories and Russians already stole it. So we finished as well rapeseed harvesting. We um, we collect more uh, rapeseed compared to previous season. Same time, we are in huge delay in corn and sunflower seeds harvesting. Firstly, it's because of weather. We have very wet autumn conditions. And in case of corn, the moisture level of corn is on the fields. It's like 28, 26%, which is two times higher than it should be per export environments. And to dry this corn, farmers have to use gas, but mm-hmm. gas is too expensive for them. And the cost of drying is around $50 per metric tons. It's absolutely out of the cost of, of the price. So cost of production, including drying for corn, is much higher than current price. When the ports were basically uh, shut down from the invasion, there was some grain moving on rail to the westerly direction into Europe. Is that still happening? Yes, absolutely, especially after Russians uh, suspend mm-hmm. grain deal and uh, Ukrainian port terminals are full of grains. Uh, there are no room for new uh, for new grain, grain on terminals. Farmers and traders redirect some part to Danube River and uh, there are three small river ports and two uh, European borders by by railway. All November schedule for railway is full booked. We have still, we have a huge queues between Ukraine and Europe because of different wage of railways. Mm -hmm. So you can't directly load um, wagon in Ukraine and direct it to Europe, to your final destination point, because you have to change wagon on, on the border where different uh, wage of railways uh, meet each other. 
Maxi Grain Analyst Elena Naroba. My name's Clint Jasper. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath Macklin, and Tim Simons for bringing Country Breakfast together this week. If you head to our show notes, this week I've added the Twitter handles of some of the leading Black Sea agriculture analysts, and Elena is definitely among them. They're an excellent source for near instant information about the grain trade around the Black Sea, which of course is a vital source of food for countries in the Middle East, Africa, and Southern Asia. That's the end of our show today, but we're just starting the best Saturday morning lineup in the country, so keep it locked to RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.